This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Slash Film Show. Today is Monday, July 3rd, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we are going to have a spoiler-filled conversation about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com. I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor and chief film critic, Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, Chris, let's get into it. Uh, I guess right up top, broad uh, opening gambit here. What did you think about this movie? Ah oh, man, you know, I, I growing up, I was a, I was a, an indie kid. I feel like people our age, uh, I'm a little older than you, but I feel like I'm lumping you into my age. Uh, people our age either grew up loving Star Wars or Indiana Jones, and I was an Indiana Jones kid. I had the the VHS tapes from McDonald's because they did that back in the day, mm-hmm. and I, I was a big Indiana Jones fan. I used to rewatch the first three movies all the time, all the time, especially uh, Last Crusade. So when they, you know, when they announced they were making a new Indiana Jones movie, I got excited because I love Indiana Jones. And uh, I was I was interested in the idea of them continuing for at least one more movie, especially after Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which is a uh, a lopsided film. I don't hate it as much as some people, but I don't 
love it either. Uh, and then a lot of different things happened. Uh, Steven Spielberg was no longer directing it, and that gave me pause. But I like James Mangold, so I, I decided to give it a chance. And I'm a I'm a little disappointed with this movie. Um, Harrison Ford is is doing great stuff here. He's he's all in on it, and it it's it's fun to watch him in that role again. But the magic felt like it was gone. It just felt like it was lacking a certain oomph that I really wanted. I, I felt like the action set pieces were just kind of there, and you know, like. I feel like this is unfair because no one is as good as him, but the entire time I just kept thinking, man, I wish Steven Spielberg had directed this because all of this would probably be a lot better in his hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you remember if Spielberg has like publicly said why he didn't get back behind the camera for this one? I don't remember the exact reason. I think it was just, he was busy with other things and it took them a long time to, narrow down a script uh, i just remember they kept they they went through a lot of different writers on this until they they got to where they are now and i don't know maybe it was just taking too long for him to to want to direct it and maybe he just lost interest i don't know i mean maybe he was just like you know what screw this i'm not gonna i'm not gonna direct it yeah part of me wonders if um a big part of it must have been george lucas was not actively involved in this one and like spielberg and lucas obviously are really good friends and they sort of generated this franchise together out of nowhere so it might have felt something might have felt like wrong or like a betrayal or something on spielberg's part if he was going to work on another indie movie without lucas there sort of by his side so i wonder if that had any sort of um factor into yeah i wouldn't be surprised if that played a part too um yeah i i actually you know i'd heard kind of very mixed things about this movie going in and so my expectations were very very low and uh you and i talked very recently about the Indiana Jones movies and our feelings on them. So I, I think all of that is like well-trod territory. I was very, uh, I'm a huge fan of the, the original, um, uh, well, I was going to say the original trilogy, but I actually don't really care for Temple of Doom that much. So f- number one and number three are like, you know, up there for me, like top tier all timer movies. And, um, yeah, I ended up liking this movie a lot more than I thought I was going to. I, I was kind of dreading another crystal skull type of fiasco. And, um, while I did have several issues with it, it, it was much, much better to me. For for me, the ranking right now, if I had to put them in a ranking, I would probably put Raiders number one and Last Crusade like just a hair below it. And then uh, I would put this movie and then there would be a gigantic gulf. And then I think I would actually put Crystal Skull above Temple of Doom. That's how much I disliked Temple of Doom on my last wow. uh, rewatch. But um, so yeah, just to sort of give people an, an idea of like, you know how we're coming into this um but yeah i wrote down a bunch of things here in the show notes just like moments from the movie and and aspects of it that i thought we could get into so uh what did you think about the opening scene um james mangle the the co-writer and director has said that he wanted to start the movie giving people sort of an approximation like his, his best uh, version of doing what spielberg did in the original trilogy and then sort of ease folks into the older indiana jones and the the you know, the bulk of this story, which takes place in 1969, but the, the opening sequence is this flashback. What did you think about that scene? I felt like it went on really long. Like it went on longer than I was expecting it to. And I also feel like they didn't need it. I guess I get why they're doing it because all the other movies begin with, you know, an action sequence, but I feel like they could have started with a better action sequence than this, I guess. Yeah. It's not like it's, it's like a bad action sequence. It's not, it's like, Oh, that looks like crap. It's just, it just felt like 
something was missing. Like I, man, it's t- this movie is such a pain in the ass for me because every time I think about it, I just keep thinking, well, the other movies were better. And it's like, that's, I, I said it already, but it's unfair to keep comparing these, this to Spielberg. And I, I need to find a way to just like look at this as its own movie. And even if I'm looking at it as its own movie, I still think that the opening goes on for a very long time. And I'm also getting really tired of movies where people walk on top of trains. Like it's like the easiest <laughs> thing in the world. Yeah. Like I'm like the, the I, I saw the new mission impossible movie and this isn't a spoiler cause it's all over the trailers, but there's a very lengthy sequence in that where people are just like walking casually on top of like the <laughs> fastest train you can imagine. And I'm, it's like, I know you're supposed to spend disbelief, especially the Indiana Jones movies where, you know, there's the supernatural and stuff like that. But I'm getting really tired of this where it's like it, it's, people are going to get the wrong idea and kids are going to go walk on top of trains <laughs> and they're going to fly off. It's going to become an epidemic of kids flying off the top of trains. I just know it. You won't can't someone walk. think of the kids? Won't someone think of the children? Listen, children, this is your uncle Chris giving you advice. Don't don't walk on top of speeding trains. It, it doesn't work like it does in the movies. So I thought the opening, um, you know, I, I appreciated what Megal was going for here, and that idea of like sort of splitting the movie into these two chunks and trying to give us an approximation of of what Spielberg did so well. Um, I, I feel like the uh, the CG is what really threw me, and I kind of. Um, was in like crisis mode in the opening scene of this movie because I was like, oh no, if this is what this is, I'm not sure I'm going to like this at all. And there's one scene in particular, or one shot in particular, where um, Indy gets on top of a train like you're talking about and he's sort of like hopping from train car to train car and the, the camera is like pulling back and it's a super ultra wide shot, I guess. And it just looks like worse than a video game like the the (laughs) graphics are just i mean abysmal and um i mean obviously we've talked on this podcast before about like the atrocious working conditions that people in the vfx industry are are facing and a lot of that comes from studios not knowing what they or or directors or whatever uh department heads not knowing exactly what they want until the last possible minute so these people are like overworked and given you know okay you have to you know give us the best version of this in like four days instead of six months or whatever, you know, for example. So um, I'm not blaming the VFX people, but like, well, good God, that was, that was really rough. And then the, the digital de-aging, what did you think about that? You know, it did not bother me. Um, I actually thought it looked pretty good. There's like a few shots where you're like, all right, this is not real, but it didn't, I didn't think it looked that bad. Honestly, I'm not, as against digital de-aging as a lot of people seem to be. I, I think it's a lot better than straight up recreating dead people. Like that's, I draw the line at that, but the digital de-aging, I think if, if it's in, if it's done sparingly, like I don't want a whole movie where someone is digitally de-aged, but if it's done, uh, you know, with some sort of um, tact and, and uh, you know, an appropriate amount of time, it doesn't bother me. And I actually thought it looked pretty good here. the problem i had is they didn't they should have like raised harrison ford's voice i think like mm. digitally because it's very much his current old man voice and you know to be fair he's always had a bit of a gruff voice but he doesn't sound like a young man he sounds very much like an older guy and i feel like if they had like boosted his his uh audio an octave or something it probably would have been even more 
uh, acceptable. But what did you think? Um, I thought there were moments where it looks pretty good, uh, especially like in shadow. They, they, I think wisely the the opening moment where he sort of has that bag pulls pulled off his head. Half of his face is in shadow, and so I thought they did a good job of sort of hiding it there. That whole that whole opening is very darkly lit, and I'm guessing they, yeah they did that specifically just to hide the the de aging. But yeah. there are shots where I was like, again, where I was just like, man, if Spielberg were shooting this, it would it would be dark, but you could still see what the hell was going on. Yeah, yeah, and that was a problem too. Like, so yeah, for the most part, I thought it was like okay. Um, you know, we're clearly not there yet in terms of like the photo reel. Uh, you know, my mind uh, fully buys that this is Harrison Ford from, you know, 1980, whatever. Um, so I, I was distracted by it really is the short answer, but, uh, but it, it looked okay. There, there were some moments that looked better than others, but like the, um, you know, the, the Spielberg sort of uh, approach of like shooting things practically. And that's like kind of what defines Indiana Jones to me. I feel like we talked about that recently. Yeah. Um and and even like characters jumping around on top of trains, like that actually happens in the opening of Last Crusade. And obviously, this is a much different type of train. It's much bigger and, and doesn't have any like uh, snake have, pits or anything. Yeah, it doesn't have a gigantic water snake, whatever the hell that thing is. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, but there's just something like I, I think he jumps onto a motorcycle at one point as as he like jumps out of a car and they're like trying to get to the train, and it just you know it's so clearly digitally done that right off the bat i'm like oh no like the magic like you're saying there's the magic is gone because that sort of tactile thing that defines an indiana jones movie in my in my mind an experience like that in my mind is just not there um because they're they're doing the cg thing again which is what i feel like hurt crystal skull to to such a big degree but um thankfully i think the movie sort of um gets that stuff out of the way early for the most part and then largely sticks with more practical feeling or more practical seeming stuff really for the whole rest of the movie there there are a few little flashes that we can talk about here and there but um but yeah so i i was kind of like okay now that this intro is over let me like take a breath and settle into this movie and I, i feel like i enjoyed it a lot more um, from there. So it, it picks up in New York city in 1969 and we've got essentially this sort of old man indie where he's working at Hunter college and he's about to retire and like his students aren't really paying attention to him. And, uh, yeah, it sort of like reintroduces us to what indie is like in this world where his neighbors are blaring rock and roll music and the moon <laughs> landing is, is, has happened. And the, there's a, par- a parade for the astronauts and all of this. And, and it sort of seems like the world has almost left Indiana Jones behind a little bit. What did you think about the, the uh, I guess, reintroduction to the, the um, I was going to say modern version of the character, but like the the present version of the character yeah. in the rest of this movie? Yeah, I liked it. I liked that they leaned into him being an old guy and the world is sort of passing him by. And I, I kind of like that, you know, things have changed. Like, you know, in the in the earlier films, you see his students are, 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 are listening to him with rapt attention, especially the female students who all want to jump his bones and they all have, they have, like words on their eye, their <laughs> eyelids and stuff like that. And the, the students in this are just like falling asleep. And it's just like, I like that that shows like the shifting of, of time and how, you know, what was once really exciting to kids of a different generation is, is boring the hell out of them now. And I think that's like a nice commentary on just how, you know, things change and how enter uh, what we look at 
as entertainment changes too. what we, you know, what, what we liked once is not going to be the same thing as we like as time goes by. And I thought that was a nice little touch and, you know, he's retiring and he, he's, he's all on his own again, you know, at the end of the, I guess we're talking to spoilers again, but mm-hmm. at the end of the, like the last movie, him and Marion get married, but she's not with him anymore. And there, you see there's, he has like divorce paperwork and, uh, Good old Mutt Williams isn't around either, and I guess we'll, yeah. we'll get we'll get to that. Um, but uh, well, yeah, we can talk about that now. That, that they, they yeah. I think he he says there's a scene later on the boat where he sort of describes a little bit more in detail of what happened there. But um, but yeah, there's what did you think about the thing on? He's like watching TV, and there's a thing where they they casually mention, oh, by the way, his son is dead. <laughs> so yeah, what did you think yeah. about how they handled that? You know, I thought it, it worked. Fine. I know everyone hates that character. <laughs> So uh, it, it makes sense that they would kill him off. Um, and I do think that gives in the, you know, even though it's kind of lazy to kill someone, to give someone an emo- a narrative through line, I do think it works for the character here in that he barely really got to know his, like he just found, he just sort of found out he had a son and he didn't really get to know him that well. He didn't get to, and that ties into um, the, the old, even though this is a Spielberg movie, it ties into the, you know, the Spielbergian, daddy issues that you know every every character in in a spielberg adjacent movie has has these these uh father son uh issues and so he has that now because his son is is no longer around he didn't really get to impart his years of wisdom on on poor mutt williams who died in vietnam yeah yeah i i appreciated that as well i i feel like on my recent rewatch of Crystal Skull, I did not mind the Mutt Williams character nearly as much. Like, you know, I don't either. I think he's he got a bad rap. I mean, granted, him swinging around with the monkeys yeah. is really <laughs> stupid, but I kind of liked the character. I liked that he's this like idiot greaser character, yeah. and he's he's really brash, and he has this sort of like you know fire to him where he's gonna like jump into a fight if he feels slighted in in whatever way, and like the idea that he. Uh, he goes and and goes off to to Vietnam in order to piss off Indy, as he says later on yeah. in the movie. Like that makes total sense to me. So, like, um, you know, I guess placing this movie in that historical context or whatever. Um, yeah, like you said, it's a little bit lazy to do this sort of fridging thing. But um, at the same time, like, the movie might have been too crowded with Mutt Williams like tagging oh, yeah. along and all of that. So I I, I, I uh, see that they were in sort of a tough storytelling position and I, I appreciated the way that they took out of it. I, th- I thought they handled it well. So yeah, definitely. Uh, okay. So um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character comes in uh, Helena Shaw, um, Indy's goddaughter, the daughter of um, uh, Toby Jones's character who appears in that, that train sequence in the beginning of the movie. And uh, she kind of like becomes the, the um, co-lead of the film, like right off the bat, basically she, she reintroduces herself to Indy who she hasn't seen in many years. It's maybe a decade plus or something. And, uh, and basically just like sort of um, insinuates herself near him in order to uh, get one half of this um, Antikythera, I think is what the, what it was called the, the uh, Archimedes dial, um, which is the, the big MacGuffin of the movie. Yeah. Um, so what did you think about Phoebe Waller-Bridge in this film? This is a good place to talk about her. I feel like this, this script is really messy and it does this thing where it introduces a lot of ideas and doesn't follow through with them. Um, I like that this character is supposed, she's supposed to be morally gray. She's, she's like a combination of all the different indies in that, 
she's looking for something, but she wants that fortune and glory, like Indy in, in Temple of Doom, where he's he seems to be more interested in that than in finding artifacts. Uh, and so I, I think they introduce this idea that she's supposed to be morally gray and she's more interested in the money because she has to pay off. I think she has to pay off like gambling debts or something, something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. And they never like really continue with that. They sort of just like after an initial thing where she sort of betrays Indy at the beginning and she runs away with the, the Archimedes dial, they kind of just give up on that whole thing. So I feel like that's not Phoebe Waller Bridges fault. I think she does a good job with what she has here. I just feel like that character is really thinly sketched. And I feel like, a lot of the characters in this movie are very thinly sketched and not really fleshed out as much as they should be. Like Indy feels like he's the only really fleshed out character here. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. I I guess I wasn't bothered by it because I just find Phoebe Waller-Bridge like so um, compelling and charming and watchable. And I I feel like this character could have been like an utter disaster in in anybody (laughs) else's hands, but I feel like she has that sort of, there's something about her where she kind of fits in this, um, in this milieu or whatever, where like she, she makes sense in this context. And, um, and I, yeah, I, I sort of found myself like uh, appreciating that performance. And, and now that you say that, I, I totally um, see what you mean where like the character almost shifts from this, like I'm in it for myself to basically just becoming like a good guy. And like, yeah. you know, um, almost like the, the surrogate daughter of, uh, of Indiana Jones as the movie goes on. Like there's that scene on the boat that we'll get to in a little bit where she um, is like, uh trying to to decipher some text and she like decides to help Indy out and like I guess you could see maybe like the the version of this character that we're introduced to in the first few minutes maybe uh, a more complicated movie might have had her like legitimately side with the Mads Mikkelsen character in order to make money and like leave yeah. Indy high and dry or something but they choose not to do that I think just because um, I don't know, maybe, maybe that would have been too one, one obstacle too many for them to have to like emotionally overcome. But yeah, um, I feel like it's okay that she, her opinion changes over the movie. I just feel like they don't handle the way it changes that way. It just, it just like sort of happens. Like, I feel like it needed something else to spur her. I mean, I guess you could argue that she doesn't want to help Nazis. I mean, no one wants to help yeah. Nazis, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, well, I shouldn't say no one. There are people out there in this day and age who want to help Nazis, which is terrifying, yeah. but, uh, that's another topic. But, um, yeah, I, I feel like they just kind of handled that, that shift in her character just a little bit better. So we're also introduced to Boyd Holbrook, who's playing uh, this sort of, I guess, lackey to Mads Mikkelsen's villain. And then there's the CIA agent who is played by Seanette Renee Wilson. And all of this is happening in New York. And there's this big sort of chase scene across the rooftops and the streets of New York. And it's all, you know, going through the parade. And Indy jumps on a horse and goes down into a subway. And yeah. is like out maneuvering a train and uh, all of that. So um, this is the part where I, again, this is still, still mostly like the beginning of the movie. And I was like, okay, I'm into this transition. Like, you know, I'm, I'm back on board with what's going on here. Um, you know, Indy back in the classroom, Indy among his colleagues, you know, um, the professors and all of that kind of stuff. And then like Phoebe Waller-Bridge's introduction, I, I appreciate it. And then as soon as they introduced this Boyd Holbrook um, CIA agent subplot thing, I, I kind of got like, okay, what exactly is the dynamic here? The, the government is like, uh, sanctioning the moves of Mads Mikkelsen's character because he helped them build a rocket and like yeah. he has his own motivations and he's trying to 
you know, he, 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 uh, obviously is like holding a grudge against the, the uh, allies winning world war two. Um, so all of this just kind of seemed like a little mushy to me. Like uh, I, I couldn't quite pinpoint exactly like, I don't know, maybe, maybe everybody else uh, read this. Maybe you were one of these people, Chris, where like you had no problem with this whatsoever, but it just kind of seemed like uh, a little, a little blurry to me. Like maybe another pass at the script might've helped clarify some of this stuff. Um, especially since these characters are basically like, well, the CIA agent character, Seanette Renee Wilson's character, is like disposed of, dispatched pretty quickly. And yeah. so it kind of feels like, okay, what was the point of this character? Like, if you're just going to introduce her only to kill her 15 minutes later, it just didn't really seem like, um, I don't know, like like uh, essential to whatever the story is that they're trying to tell here. But what did you think about the... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you on, on this. These, these feel like the... Going back to the thinly sketched character, especially that CIA agent character, I don't think... They even say her name and maybe they do and I missed it. But um, I was so like when they introduce her and then just kill her off. I was like, why is that character even in the movie? Like they didn't need that character at all because, uh, you know, I get what they're going for. Because in 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 real life, actually, like the, the U.S. government recruited actual Nazi scientists to help with the moon race. They like, that's a real thing that happened here. And that's what they're implying with the Mads Mikkelsen character, that he was a, a Nazi scientist who helped with the moon race, but they don't really go into that. That well, there's like a toss away line sort of where they, and like, I feel like they should have hammered that home a little bit more to explain why. Cause I was at first, I was like, why is this CIA agent working with a Nazi? And then I was like, Oh, I guess she doesn't realize he's a Nazi, but maybe she does. It's just, it was yeah. so like poorly done. And again, like why introduce that character just to kill her off? Like just, just cut that character entirely. You, you don't really need her. Like I get the Boyd Holbrook character, even though I don't think he's very well-written either, but every, every villain needs a henchman and that's what he's doing here. Yeah. And, but the CIA agent character is just like, she's there to be like killed basically. And it's just, it's like a very weird, poorly thought out character. Yeah. Um, also one thing I didn't write down here is, is we, we get the, uh, I guess the reintroduction of Sala, who is Indy's old friend, who is now a cab driver in New York. Um, I, I thought that uh, Sala was used like just the right amount in this movie where it was not like sort of eye rolly that he came along on the adventure and was like yeah. tagging along the whole time. I thought he, you know, was used in what a couple scenes or something throughout the whole thing. And uh, John Rice Davies was, was fine. And you know, these characters got a chance to sort of reconnect and, and it wasn't like too um, fan servicey where like my fan service radar didn't uh, go off. And, and I, you know, like <laughs> the entire uh, everything inside of my body is like revolting <laughs> like it does so yeah. often when, uh, when these fan service moments come around. So what did you think about solid in this film? Yeah, I, I think he works exactly the way he should. And I like the little speech they gave him where he's like, I miss the desert and I miss the sea. I did a pirate voice there. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I love that little speech he gives. And I, I thought, yeah, he was used just the, the perfect amount of time. It, it would have been really awkward if he was like, I'm coming too, Indy. And Indy's like, fine, let's go on this <laughs> journey together. So yeah, I think it works just right. So they go to Tangier and there's this auction where Helena is, is trying to sell the dial. Uh, and um, I, I like the, the uh, production design and the, the set design and all of that. I thought that that whole area looked really cool. And that auction scene was, was pretty awesome. Like Indy, you know, 
jumping in there and trying to um, interrupt the proceedings and uh, everybody in the, in the place, like pulling a gun on him at the same time. Like yeah. some of that stuff is cheesy, but I, I thought it worked well. I thought, thought it felt like a very Indiana Jones scene to me. Um, yeah. And then it goes into this, uh, this big, like, I think it's called a tut tut, like a, basically like a rickshaw kind of like a motorized rickshaw kind of chase scene. And this is where I was like, oh no, like my, my, uh, my allegiance to this movie was waxing and waning dramatically as I was watching it. Um, because I thought this scene just like went on way too long. Like you, you had that issue with the opening scene and I thought this chase was just like almost interminable. It was just like, man, okay, get to the point already. Um, and it doesn't look like even slightly real. Like yeah, to go back. Yeah. Going back to the all the other Indiana Jones, with the exception of Crystal Skull, which has a few not. Although it ha, Crystal Skull has a really great chase scene. That that college chase scene mm-hmm. is yeah. is fantastic, and it's done practically, like with a real motorcycle and real. And this is just like a hundred percent. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's not a hundred percent CGI, but it looks a hundred percent CGI. Like there's a shot where Indy jumps from the tut tut onto something else, and it like he looks like Gumby. It looks so bad. And yeah. I just kept thinking, like, if Spielberg were doing this, he would use models. He would use a real, like, actual chase. It would be, it would look fucking amazing. And here it just looks like, it's like shot in a lot of close-ups, which just looks like crap. Because, like, we want to see the action. We don't want to see, like, get the camera out of the, the, whatever it is, the cockpit of the the vehicle and Mm -hmm. show us what's going on. Yeah, totally. And, And there are so many moments where, like, they're driving through traffic and, like, you know, uh, coming close to a car that they're trying to get to and then dramatically swerving so a car can ride between them. And it's so clear that like all of these things are CG and it just like the motion looks wrong. The, um, you know, the, the cars themselves on the road look wrong. It all just seems fake. And it's just like, God, this is not what an Indiana Jones movie is supposed to be like. So exactly. uh, I, I was a, yeah, a really um, disappointed by that. But uh, I, I didn't mind the, uh, the Teddy character, which is Helena's young sidekick. Again, talking about characters that are used like ju- in just the right amounts. I feel like that is a good character that sort of, um, uh, you know, calls back to short round and, and like, yeah. you know, has a little bit of a throwback feel to him, but also, you know, has this, this interesting dynamic with Helena and also isn't like overused or like, you know, so many of these kids are like, uh, raised in the Disney channel stable and like play to the cheap seats with every single line that they read. So it's, you know, they're like, gee whiz. And you can kind of like almost hear <laughs> like the, the, uh, yeah. the, the cringy delivery. And I thought this kid was like much more natural than that. So I appreciated that. Uh, what did you think about the, about the uh, Teddy character? I thought the actor was fine, but I also felt like this is another character that the movie did not really need. Like I, I get why he's there, but I feel like it's, it's one sidekick too many. Like Indy does not need this many sidekicks. Although I, I do think it's a direct callback to Temple of Doom where he has Willie and he has a uh, short round. So, but I don't, I don't know. I didn't yeah. mind the character. It just like, I was like, we don't need this character. Like let's, <laughs> let's streamline the movie a little bit. Let's cut yeah. this character. Let's cut the CIA agent character. Let's, let's go. We can make this better. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, let's take a quick break actually. And then we'll be right back. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. 
Head to Hero.co to shop today. All right, so let's talk about Mads, uh, Mads Mikkelsen, Chris. Um, he plays this character named, what is his name? Jurgen Voller, who, uh, as you mentioned, has this sort of the ties to the Apollo moon landing program. And his whole thing is that he wants to put the Archimedes dial together so he can go back in time, not to, um, you know, ensure necessarily that uh, that Germany wins the war in, in like a, a typical way, but to... I think he the implication, if if not outright said in dialogue, is that he wants to basically kill Hitler so someone else, probably him, can step in and like do the version of Hitler that would have succeeded instead of the one that failed. Um, yeah. Which is, I guess, kind of an interesting idea. Um, but yeah, what do you neat, make of, of Mads Mikkelsen's character, the, the villain here? Man, I like Mads Mikkelsen, but he is phoning it in here, man. He is just like... First of all, he can play this kind of role in his sleep. Like it's it's like kind of lazy casting. Like, who are we gonna get to get up to play a Nazi guy? Mads Mickelson. Like it just seems very obvious. And I don't think he's giving a bad performance. I just feel like he's a very unmemorable villain. Like he's he's just like, eh, like he's there. Yeah. I wish he had more of a, a personal connection to Indy. Like the, the the thing about um Belloc and Donovan in Raiders and Last Crusade is that they they sort of share in a similar passion that Indy has, and that you know there's that idea of like, oh, we're two sides of the same coin. Like you know you, we're not so different, you and I. Like that yeah. whole thing, which is like an overused trope, but I feel like that um, that that's a trope for a reason. It makes for an interesting uh, reflection of what our hero is, and you sort of see like how you know just a couple clicks away, um, how our hero maybe could have gone gone astray or whatever and, and ended up living a, a life of villainy like these characters and there's not really much to tie mads mickelson in with indy other than, i mean they have this this encounter on the train at the very beginning of the movie um but it's not like you know their their um uh grand nemeses or anything yeah. like that you know it's just kind of like that they both have a vague interest in history <laughs> like maybe that's the, the closest that i can get for a for a parallel but um yeah. but yeah i mean i i think i ultimately agree with you it's not like he was doing anything it's not like you know i've been rewatching the um the mission possible movies and like philip seymour hoffman's villain in in mi3 is like uh, looming large in my mind right now for like what a great franchise villain performance can be and he's chewing on scenery in that movie to a degree but also like He's just written so well. And yeah, like this character just doesn't really have much to him. So um, yeah. again, maybe unfair comparison, but that's something that, that's sort of, you know, going doesn't off even in my mind. seem that like, obviously he's bad because he's a Nazi, but they don't really make him seem that like villainous. He's just sort of like there, like he should, yeah. they should have like amped up his, his evilness. Like other than like his whole, you know, other again, you know, he's a Nazi. It just feels like they could have done more to make him, a bad guy. Yeah. Somebody else who is there is Antonio Banderas who pops up <laughs> in, uh, in Greece. And, um, I, I thought I was very happy to see him. Uh, what did you think about Banderas's performance in this? Man, this, this really threw me for a loop cause he's good in the movie. He's fun, but he dies so quickly. And yeah. it's like, why did they cast him in that role? Like I was expecting something more like, Cause they, he has like a big, they, they really talk him up where they're like, he's the best diver in the world. And like, he's just like, <laughs> he just sort of just there and then he gets shot. And it's like, Oh, like they couldn't have 
why did the why cast Antonio Banderas in that role is I guess my question. Yeah, um, I don't know. It, it's fun to see him. I guess maybe that's the extent of it. Uh, it's a very very small role, as you mentioned. Um, I, I was happy to see him, and uh, and yeah, like you know, there's this underwater exploration scene which kind of serves the purpose of moving the plot along and, and helping them find, you know, another piece of the puzzle or whatever to, to ultimately get them to their destination. But also it, it leads to the first big, like uh, sort of like um, creature gross out moment in the movie where there's this, the scene with the eels underwater um, yeah. where, you know, th- those are a staple of these indie movies. So this is the first time I think that they've done any sort of like underwater thing. And uh, I was wondering what you thought about, the execution of this scene. I thought it was, it was good. It works for me. Um, yeah, I don't have any, uh, they do go underwater very briefly in last crusade, but it's not the same kind of underwater. It's not oh, like yeah, the yeah. ocean. Uh, but yeah, I thought it worked really well. Anytime they're doing something like this, it feels very indie ish. Like where they're like, we gotta, we have a little quest we have to go on and we have to, you know, dive down to do this. And I, you know, I like stuff like that in these movies. Yeah, I thought the eel stuff was was pretty well done, and I appreciated the um, yeah, like the the different visual aesthetic that you get of like you know seeing Indy as like a, a world renowned adventurer. We've seen him do so many different types of things. We've never really seen him do something like this before. So I was I was appreciating yeah. like the uh, the novelty of it almost. Um, but yeah, so you talked about Banderas's character dying pretty early on, and there or, or I mean soon after being introduced anyway. And there's a moment where. Um, they escape the Indy and um, and Helena and her young sidekick all escape. And she's like celebrating. And he's like, my friend was just murdered. And I, <laughs> I feel like that is uh, a thing that more movie characters should say, because this scene and the way that Helena responds to their escape seems very familiar to me. Like it seems to happen in like every adventure movie. Um, but very rarely, almost never do you get characters saying, the thing that Indy says, which is like, hey, like, let's take one second and think about what actually happened back there instead of just immediately moving on to the next plot point. So um, I just wanted to highlight that line because it's so, um, you know, you, you don't really see that very often. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of people that die in this movie. There's, there's, you know, the beginning of the movie where Indy is like celebrating with his peers. Uh, a lot of them just get murdered, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> almost, almost, um, Willy nilly, like the, 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 I guess that's part of what you're talking about. Like maybe make Mads Mikkelsen's character eat more evil or something. That's kind of what they do with the Boyd Holbrook character where he's just like no witnesses and he just murders all of these old professors. Um, yeah. But there are a lot of characters that die in, in this movie, like seemingly more to me than like, uh, or, or more innocent people, I should say. Um, the CIA character is another one. I think her name is Mason, according to Wikipedia, which I did not remember as, yeah, as being a thing. I'm positive <laughs> they don't say that in the movie. Hey, Mason! I don't remember that. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. That was another thing that I just wanted to, to raise and point out here. It's just like, yeah. you know, c- there are a lot of like, in other indie movies, like uh, Nazi soldiers you know there are tons of those characters that die but you don't really care about them and there's a lot of like collateral damage in this movie so um i don't know if that's something 
you think Spielberg would have done that if he was was directing here, or or uh, you think that's just like a um, a James Mangold like I've got some bloodlust, <laughs> like what's going on, or do you have any theory yeah, about why that is? I don't know. All I can think of is it's it's supposed to be like a metaphor for that Indy's old Indy's world is is passing him by, and everyone he knows is dying in a way. Like instead of dying of old age, they're being murdered. But it's the same sort of idea that yeah. the older you get, the more people you lose in your life. Like that's just the that's a harsh reality of life. But I don't know if they're going for something that depressing in an indiana jones movie i don't know um so they they eventually make their way to the characters eventually make their way to uh, archimedes grave which is in this cave in sicily and i think they actually shot on location in sicily it looks beautiful um and this is the kind of thing where i was like okay now i'm fully back on board with this movie because uh you know there there's like cave exploration and like uh, puzzle skeletons. solving and yeah exactly like the the fun kind of stuff you know the the kind of like the things that like the natural uh national treasure movies took from the indiana jones movies we're now seeing those elements you know placed back into an indie context here um and that's when i'm like all right I, i'm i'm fully back on board with this i love all this sort of sort of like exploration shit like the the underwater scene i appreciate it but yeah like once they're actually like you know um in the cave and like twisting dials around and like doing all the the kind of like um tactile you know um oh the uh displacement of water like that's archimedes whole thing and like all that kind of stuff and like sliding down ramps and all that i'm like yes this is the the real shit this is the good stuff like give me more of this so i want to know when archimedes built all this shit i'm I'm assuming he's the (laughs) one who built like this this cave of of traps and puzzles like when did you have time, Archimedes? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the great question that you can ask about like any any Indiana Jones thing. Like, you know, in the Hovito's cave in, in the very beginning of Raiders, like who, who invented the stuff? technology where you know light uh, causes daggers to you know you know to shoot yeah. out of the the uh, or darts or whatever to shoot out of the walls. Um, yeah, I love all that stuff. Um, okay, so I, I guess we're we're really getting here, Chris. Is there any anything that you wanted to mention before we get into like the the big I guess third act of the movie. Anything I'm just happy there's skeletons. You need skeletons in an Indiana Jones movie. There has to be a scene where there's a bunch of skeletons somewhere, and that's that's what my that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> if you don't have a bunch of like, there's something about that in these movies. There were Indiana Jones is always like finding skeletons, and for some reason the skeletons will scream like in, in Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark where they find like there's like a there's like a hundred skeletons in that yeah. in that tomb, and they're all going what. It's like, like arms are outstretched. Yeah, I don't understand why the skeletons are screaming, but I love it. Give me, give me more of that. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess that's maybe just like representing Marion's uh, POV. Her mind, yeah, she's yeah. just assuming they're screaming, but that's I yeah. love that stuff. That's like my favorite. That's some of my favorite stuff in Indiana Jones movies when skeletons pop out and scream. Awesome. Uh, okay, so let's talk about the big swing of the movie. Which afterwards, my wife and I were sitting in the theater as the the credits were rolling, and I was like that is maybe like the big swing of all big swings. What happens at the end of this film? So time travel actually is like a real thing that, that, uh, you know, comes to pass in this movie. So they get the two um, parts of the dial and they, they put it all together. And uh, Voller, um, Mads Mikkelsen's character talks about wanting to go back to 1939 and Indy realizes that continental drift has not been factored into the, the equation, the mathematical equation here. So they go through this time fissure in the sky and they emerge in 212 BC during the siege of Syracuse. 
Uh, what did you think, Chris, when you when you were like realizing, slowly realizing, like, oh my god, they're actually going to do this thing? You know, I had a feeling this is where it was going, and it didn't. I I didn't think it was it was too outlandish. It was too like I feel like everything else that happens in these movies, you might as well throw in some time travel too. I do think it's suspicious that they just happen to show up exactly at the same time as Archimedes and he shows up to in his little robe and he's like, ah, hello. He doesn't say hello, but you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> but it's like of all the times for them to end up, they end up exactly at a time when Archimedes, the guy who invented this goddamn dial is just hanging out. Like that's, that probably stretches a little bit of logic for me. But other than that, I, I thought it was, uh, uh, you know, I think it makes sense in the context of the film. I think that's what I'm going for here. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like, well, that's a cheat. It feels like, well, obviously they were building towards this and it makes a certain amount of sense for them to end up uh, back in time. Yeah. So I have to admit that like only at the very end of that sequence did I, or near the end of that sequence, did I understand the idea that like they couldn't have really gone anywhere else. Like Helena mentions at at a certain point on the ship, I think she has a deck of cards and she gets characters to draw a certain card from the deck. And she explains like, you know, I, I forced this card on you. Like there, there was no other outcome because I, I sort of made you, I gave you the impression that you were choosing, but you weren't actually choosing. And she says something similar when they're in, you know, in, in I think it's Sicily and, the, and during this siege of Syracuse period, she says something along the lines of like, this was the only, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but like, this is the only place that we could have come like that, you know, it was essentially like a forced card in the deck kind of situation. Yeah. And so Archimedes, like the implication to me is that Archimedes like designed this thing specifically to bring whoever, you know, puts it together in the future back to help them in this specific moment um, you know, during this, this siege, uh, which I think in real life went in a different way than it, it's depicted in this movie. Like the, the Roman army, I think are, are coming and they ultimately in real life, I think took over, but in this movie, because like the plane is serving as this dragon character that's sort of flying over and, uh, distracting everybody. Like the, the Roman army is like wiped out or something in, in this movie. So, um, some of that stuff did not really come across, uh, very clearly to me in the moment watching it, especially all that talk of continental drift and like as if um, a certain calculation could have been made that would have ultimately ended up with them making it to 1939. So like, I don't know, I'm gonna have to like rewatch that part again because maybe I was just so sort of um, dazzled by the fact that and, and kind of like my mouth was, my jaw was agape at the fact that they were actually going back in time that I missed the, um, the technicalities of like exactly how this, this time travel paradox thing works. But yeah, I'm right there with you. I didn't, I didn't pick up on a lot of that stuff and maybe I'm just an idiot. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But- and and I, I very well could be too, but, uh, but yeah, that once she mentioned, okay, yeah, it's like a forced card in the deck thing. I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I definitely missed that in the explanation. So I'm, I'm wondering if like the audience, uh, the rest of our, you know, for our listeners or whatever, um, picked up on that as well. Send us an email, bpearson at slash one.com. I'd love to know what you guys thought about that scene. Um, so yeah, it ultimately leads to this, this sort of, um, key moment where Indy, I think is shot or stabbed or something. He's, he's, uh, seemingly, yeah, significantly wounded. And he says that he wants to stay behind. And, uh, Helena is trying to convince him that, you know, he shouldn't do that. He should go back to, 
the, the era where he is from. And Indy is like really genuinely, you know, trying to make his case for why he wants to stay there. And she ends up like knocking him out and then bringing him back to the future. So uh, what did you think about the way that this scene, like, um, I guess, concludes? Do you think that that uh, that Indy should have stayed behind or, or does that not make sense to you? What do you think? I think it would have been very depressing if he stayed behind, but I do like that he wants to stay behind. I like that that character element. I like that he's, again, he's a man at a time and he, he feels like life has passed him by and what better place for him to stay than the places, you know, the past, which he spent his entire life, you know, devoted to, to studying and exploring. So I, I like that idea. And I also like that he doesn't actually stay back in time because I feel like that would just be like, I know how they would have done it. They would have had a scene where like Helena goes to like a tomb and it says like Indiana Jones died 20, whatever, 212 BC. And that would have been really stupid. So I'm, I'm glad they didn't like do something like that. And they had him come back to the present because I feel like it, you know, it's like I said, it would just be like too cold to have Indiana Jones die alone in, in the past. Yeah. Yeah, I think James Mangold, I was listening to an interview where he basically said like there was no version of the script where he stayed behind. And it was just because um, like the whole thing says more about, you know, Indy thinking that he has no one to go home to, like his, yeah. his life that he used to have as this younger man. Um, it, it's not there for him anymore because the world has, has sort of moved on in such a way. And like his marriage has fallen apart because of Mutt's death. And um, so, it, you know, it makes sense for the character to want to stay back, but I'm, I'm glad that he didn't do that because Mangled, I think, referred to it as like uh, suicide by time warp or something like that, basically, <laughs> is what it would have uh, amounted to. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad they didn't make that decision. Uh, and then, yeah, the, the sort of, um, I don't know, the final scene of the movie basically is, Indiana Jones waking back up in his apartment and Marion comes in and they, uh, they reconcile after, you know, all these years after uh, Mutt's death and everything. Um, what did you think about seeing Marion again in the flesh and, and these two characters coming back together? I really like this scene. I think this is like probably one of the best scenes in the movie because they reenact that scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark where they're on the, the steamship and, uh, the whole thing is where Marion keeps like <laughs> injuring him and hitting it with the mirror and stuff like that. And he's, you know, he, she's like, all right, well, where doesn't it hurt? And he's like pointing to different parts of his body and they redo that here in like this really sad, but sweet way. And it, 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 I was like, Oh, this is really good. I wish the whole movie was as good as this scene. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. Cause that seems like one of those things that's kind of like right there on the edge of like, callbacks for callbacks sake and kind of like it could be leaning a little bit close into like that yeah. sort of um fan service territory and i was wondering how you reacted to that but it sounds like they they um pulled it I, off you know to your satisfaction i think they do it in a subtle enough way that it's not annoying because they could have made it i feel like if it was just him it's the fact that she's the one like they reverse the role you know yep. what i'm saying I, mm -hmm. I think if it was like him doing it again like oh my but it doesn't hurt here and that would have that would have made it too fan servicey, but the, the 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 fact that they reverse the roles is, I think, a, a nice, honest little moment because it gives them a chance to reconcile, and you know that's that's a nice thing. I, you know, we should all we should all be so lucky. <laughs> yeah, and how many times, like you know, with friends or loved ones or whatever, like you know, of course, like running jokes and callbacks to things that happened years ago, like that's a, a regular thing in life. It's not necessarily yeah. just fan servicey type of thing. You know, like the, it makes total sense that these characters would like remember that as a key moment in their life and and go back to it all these years later. So, yeah, um, yeah that worked for me as well. 
Um, okay, I think that's pretty much it, Chris. Any other like um, I guess lingering thoughts about Dial of Destiny or, or aspects of the film that we didn't talk about? I think we covered most of the big stuff. I guess my question to you, Ben, is does this work as the end of Indiana Jones? Because Harrison Ford has said he's not going to play the role anymore, and they're probably not going to make any more movies. If they do, it'll I guess be some sort of reboot. I don't know. But is this is this for you a suitable end to Indiana Jones, where he, he gets to? I guess, live out the rest of his days happily ever after with his hat that is hanging on a clothesline for some reason. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think so. And I think that last um, that last action in the film as the camera sort of like irises in, I think, or maybe it's irises out. I don't remember yeah. what the, the technological term is there, but like the hat is hanging on the clothespin and the, the lens sort of zooms in and like the darkness forms around, uh, you know, in the circle right around the thing. And you think that maybe like the movie will just end like a Looney Tunes cartoon or something and like just disappear. But that hand jerks out of the window and he grabs his hat. And I think the implication there is like, even if, you know, this man is like in his late seventies, I think Harrison Ford is actually 80 years old right now. Um, the implication I think is that like, the adventures will continue it maybe if not like uh to the extreme degree that they have before but like this man is not not ready to just like keel over and die right now like yeah. he he you know is He's still got a going second to second lease on life sort of yeah exactly and and like maybe the adventure is just living a domestic life with Marion um, and, but that's adventure enough, you know, for, for this character after all the, the stuff that he's gone through. So yeah, I think this is a much, much more suitable ending to me than, uh, what we got in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which is like fine again. Like I, I don't actually mind the, the very end of that movie with like him grabbing the hat out of the, out of Mutt's hand basically, and, and walking out of the church. I, I appreciated the very end of that film, even though like the, the interdimensional being stuff kind of threw me for a, a bit of a loop, but, um, but yeah, I, I like this ending, um, yeah, I guess that that's another question, Chris. Like, what do you think? So, so Harrison Ford has said like nobody else is going to be Indiana Jones but me. I think Kathy Kennedy, uh, who runs Lucasfilm, has all but said the exact same thing. There's no chance. I don't think that they're going to have anybody else play Indiana, Indiana Jones. Um, so the the question is like, what do you think happens with this franchise? Is it like well and truly done, or do you think they, you know, get Ki Hui Kwan and like do a short round show on Disney Plus or like try to to loop Phoebe Waller-Bridge into another movie or a show or something because you can't really call it Indiana Jones and the whatever if Harrison Ford isn't in it and he's made it very very clear that this is the end for him so what do you think happens to the Indiana Jones franchise is it just like dead once and for all I feel like it should be and this should be the end of it but I feel like if they did a Disney Plus show and they brought back short round I might be interested in that. I don't know what they would call it. The adventures of short round. I don't know, but I feel like that's the only real thing you can do here. Otherwise you're, you're just, I don't know. Like I dread the day. There was like that weird period where they were like, they're going to reboot Indiana Jones and Chris Pratt is going to pay him. And like, Oh my God, like I'm dreading Mm -hmm. the day something like that happens because the role really belongs to Harrison Ford. And even though I don't think Solo is as bad a movie as it was made out to be, we all saw what happened when you try to recast someone as Harrison Ford. It just yeah. it does not work out uh, for the better. So, you know, they should let this, they should really let it end. You know, it's okay to let things end. And since this film is very much underperforming at the box office, I feel like it's definitely the last movie we're going to get. Like, Otherwise, you know, the other other thing I can think of is a Disney Plus show because they won't have to worry about box office that way. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if like 
the yeah they they either go for a disney plus show but even that like the you know streaming is not necessarily has not proven to be the successful model that everybody sort of seemed to think it was five years ago or whatever. So I wonder if they would even be willing to spend enough to, to make a Disney plus show, or they could like strip things all the way back and just make, you know, like a 50 or $60 million movie or something. Um, that would but maybe, be nice. Yeah. Maybe that's just like uh, too much of a, um, a naive thing to say because like Hollywood doesn't even seem to do that much anymore, especially for like big sort of, uh, you know, top tier uh, tent pole type of stuff. So um, yeah, very curious to see what happens there because it's like, it's such a recognizable brand for lack of a better term that like, it just seems impossible that Disney Lucasfilm would just let it go. But like, maybe this is one of those rare instances where uh, they have enough respect for the actor who, who helped, you know, generate all this, uh, money and goodwill and everything for the, these companies that they're actually going to like really truly, you know, let this thing go. So, um, yeah, if you out there have any ideas for like what you would like to see for the, from the future of this franchise, write us an email and let us know, because, um, I'm very curious and I would, I would love to, I mean, it's not like I can do anything with your suggestions, but I would, I would <laughs> read them on the podcast. I don't have like a direct line to Kathy Kennedy, but, uh, yeah, I would, I would love to know like what people um, think a, a good and proper ending for uh, this franchise might look like. So, um, yeah, any other thoughts here, Chris? No, I think that's it. I think Indiana Jones. Uh, I'm happy that he got to um, not die in the past. I'm <laughs> yeah, I'm glad he did not die in 212 BC all alone on that beach. Thank you, Indiana Jones. You deserved to go home and get your hat off the clothesline. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, yes, uh, you can find more about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny at SlashFilm.com. The SlashFilm show is published two times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter. There is a link to do that in the comments. Send, or I'm sorry, in, there's a link to do that in the show notes. Uh, there is um, a way for you to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns. All you have to do is send me an email at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you later on.